program. I'm Jeff Schechter. Look around us. Conflict is everywhere. In our culture, in the broader world, in our interaction with institutions. Sometimes, to try and seek shelter from the sea of conflict around us, we look into our own personal relationships for solace. When we do, we place even more pressure on those relationships, and often the seeds of conflict are sown. So with all of this conflict, how do we negotiate our way out of it? How do we break the habits of pervasive conflict, prevent or dampen conflict with those we care about? And are those skills applicable to the larger framework of conflict that's all around us? These are some of the issues taken up by my guest Dan Shapiro in his newest book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable. Daniel L. Shapiro is the founder and director of the Harvard International Negotiation Program. He's an associate professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School and an affiliate faculty at the Program of Negotiation at Harvard Law School. It is my pleasure to welcome Dan Shapiro back to this program to talk about negotiating the non-negotiable, how to resolve your most emotionally charged conflicts. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here with you, to hear your voice again. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you back. Is conflict contagious? The fact that we look around today and that there's so much conflict and it becomes more acceptable in certain ways, is there a contagion factor with respect to conflict and how we deal with it? Well, I mean, conflict is natural. Conflict happens all, you know, in, in all walks of life throughout history. I think how we deal with conflict has probably moved a bit in the wrong direction over the course of the past, you know, decade or, or, or so. Uh, I think, you know, it used to be taboo to, uh, to criticize others to too much of a negative extent in, the public, for- in public forums. It used to be taboo to walk into a school with a gun and to shoot innocent little kids. Uh, you know, now is it, is it wrong? Yes. You know, and yet at the same time, we see more and more of these destructive approaches to conflict. Uh, so so I, I, I agree with you. I think to some degree, there is a contagion to conflict and to how conflict is dealt with. And inherent in that, are we getting worse in terms of our ability to deal with it? To the degree that we find it more, quote-unquote, acceptable, do we, do we lose some of the skills, some of the competencies that allow us to deal with it and tamp it down in some cases? I think people, you know, have struggled throughout history with the challenges of conflict. The question is, how do you deal with it most effectively? Why do we get pulled down? Uh, and there, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, um, I, I, I dare judge the um, the level of conflict today from you know 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, I mean, the fact is, there's a lot of conflict out there. We're all struggling with it. How do you deal with it most effectively? You mentioned taboos a few minutes ago. That's one of the things that you talk about with respect to dealing with conflict. Let's start there. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So taboos are social prohibitions. These are the, my mother-in-law put it very well. She said they're the big no-nos. You know, the things you're not supposed to talk about, the things you're not supposed to do, things that you're not supposed to feel in a family or in a business. Uh, and, and often it's these taboo issues that tend to be the central issues driving dysfunction in either the organization or the home context. You know, I mean, for example, don't talk about mom's drinking. Uh, Don't talk about the fact that dad never expressed his love to us and I always felt like he loved you more. You know, uh, don't talk about the fact that, uh, or don't give the boss negative feedback at work if you want that promotion. 
these are all taboos. And if you, the problem is if you don't talk about them, you have a repetition of the dysfunction. And yet if you do talk about them, you often are hit with some very heavy social punishment. You know, mom starts yelling and screaming at you, so I'm getting you out of the will. Uh, dad says, what do you mean I never loved you? Why do you blame me forever? <laughs> you know, so, so taboos are challenged. So what are the tricks to break through something like that, for example? I think the first and probably most important step is to become aware of those taboos. They become such a part of our daily reality at work, at home, that we don't even see them there. We don't even acknowledge the fact that they are there, and yet they are like a big Berlin wall separating east from west. So I think step one, be aware of the taboos that are driving the dysfunction within your family, your relationships, your organization. And then second, as I talk about in the book, I call it the ACT framework, A-C-T. Three ways you can think about dealing with any taboo. One, do you want to accept it? You know, to say, you know what, mom's drinking too much, but if we ever raise it, she's going to, you know, make her suicidal gestures again, and I'd rather have her, you know, drunk and alive than, you know, to deal with this issue and have her dead. Um, So maybe you might want to accept it. On the other hand, you might go, wait a minute, though. I think it's possible to deal with this issue. Let's try and chisel it away. That's the C. Let's maybe raise the issue with her, maybe even with her doctor instead, and see if he or she can help deal with it. And then the third, the key, is to tear it down. Let's, let's directly confront mom. This is not acceptable. We can't deal with this anymore. Three different ways to try and deal with the taboo issue. One wants to think through in your own circumstance. What are the pros and cons of each of those options? Which makes the most sense for you? One of the aspects of this that you also talk about is this idea of repetition, that we tend to sort of have the same conflicts over and over again, that that the framework might change, but we can't seem to break out of some of the patterns and some of the habits that we repeat within the context of conflict. Freud called this the repetition compulsion, and that's what I call it in the book. Uh, and the way I define it, it is, it is the fact that we, we tend to reenact the same dysfunctional patterns of behavior again and again and again and again. You know, so whether it's at home with a spouse or whether it's at work with a colleague or Israelis and Palestinians, you know, it's, it's like we are on a treadmill repeating the same cycle again and again. That's the repetition compulsion. And, and you know, so... I've watched as people go to negotiation courses, for example, they, you know, it's a two-day program, and they come back to their work and they go, I am a transformed person. <laughs> yeah, maybe, about a week or two. And then all of a sudden, this little repetition compulsion pulls you back to the same old patterns. How do you break out of them? You know, I mean, so, so the book is, is really trying to get to the deeper layers of our relationships. It's, it's not a quick fix. It's a real fix. How do you really deal with the deeper challenges of conflict in relationships? Is it possible to negotiate these non-negotiable situations without dealing with those deeper issues? Can there be a surface rapprochement, a surface negotiation that then provides a framework to begin to do the hard work of really getting to the deeper roots of these conflicts? I mean, maybe. That's a good question. I, I think, you know, I mean, if my two kids, two, two, my two older boys, they, let's say they're fighting over a football. They both want the football. You know, we, we go, we work it out. I say, hey, Noah, why don't you take the football for 10 minutes and then give it to your brother? He says, fine. Zachary says, fine. They've resolved the problem. 
And yet I have no doubt that 10 minutes later, they're going to come back screaming <laughs> in, hey, 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 you know, it's the baseball. I want the baseball. No, I want the baseball. I want the baseball bat. You can fix, I mean, in that situation, you fix the problem, but you don't fix the dynamic. And I think that's the reality in organizations and companies. That's the reality in the home life. If you don't fix the dynamic, that's the real problem. You know, that, and, and that's also the real value if you can work through that dimension. Right. But in order to fix the, the underlying dynamic, it seems that it takes a certain degree of trust, a certain degree of, as you said before, acknowledging the taboos. You talk about kind of assault on the sacred. I mean, all of this is about trust that has to be first established. I think it's, 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 it's before, I mean, trust to me is largely trust, but it often implies trust between people. I think the first big step is really working through your own, you know, introspecting, reflecting, figuring out how am I contributing to this problem? Uh, I, I've done work in hostage negotiation, consulting for hostage negotiators. Remember, there was this one New York City Police Department hostage negotiator who once said to me, you know what all of your conflicts have in common? I said, what? I said, you were there. You know, I mean, it was a simple but profound. I mean, it is the idea that we are a part of every single one of our conflict situations. That means we're, we're, we're helping to create the dance. We can change the dance. You know, so it's not just about trusting the other, but it's what am I doing that is moving us in this negative direction? What are the thoughts that are running through my head? What's the mindset that I'm bringing to this conflict that's making us move in the wrong direction? And how do I stop that? move into a different mindset. And talk a little bit about moving into that other mindset and making it stick. Yes, <laughs> good point. Uh, so, I mean, the single deadliest mindset that our research has uncovered is what I call the tribe's effect. This is a divisive mindset. And whether one is in a conflict with one's spouse or two colleagues at work, this is the moment when that person you really like, you know, you're married to, suddenly turns into your adversary. It's me versus you, us versus them. And this mindset, you're right, this mindset does tend to stick. And, and more than just sticking, there are all these emotional forces that tend to pull us deeper and deeper into this mindset, like taboos, like repetition compulsion. Uh, so the first big step to get out of this mindset, you need to be aware you're in it, and two, you need to recognize all of those forces that are pulling you down further into it. And, um, and just as an example, there's a, a third concept, taboos, repetition, compulsion. There's a third one that I talk about in the book called vertigo. And this is a big deal in conflict. This is when you are in a conflict and you start to become utterly consumed by that conflict situation, emotionally consumed. You can think of nothing other than that conflict. You can think of nothing other than that, you know, egregious other person who stepped all over you, who stepped all over your interests and your pride. That's vertigo. And, and if, if you're aware of vertigo coming on, you can deal with it. I imagine it's sort of like an emotional tornado. You know, if you and I are in the midst of a conflict, I can see that little emotional swirl of the tornado coming toward us. And that once I can note that, I can then ask the most profound and simple question, do I really want to go there? <laughs> do you really want to go toward that spiraling conflict you know, that's going to last you two days rather than two minutes? Part of that, you know, the, the old expression, familiarity breeds contempt. There, there, there's mm. this sense that 
because of those, particularly in a family situation, you know the people involved so well, you know all the right buttons to push. And even if you kind of don't want to go there, if you don't want to get caught up in that vertigo, sometimes it just takes one little misstep before you pull back from the <laughs> brink before it's too late. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, that, I, I think that's right. And so I think that's why it's useful in family relationships as an example for everybody to be aware of this vocabulary, vertigo. You know, so in my own family, my wife, myself, we both know the concept. And, you know, she doesn't, you know, t- t- take resentment that I've created this concept. Uh, so, you know, when we get into an argument, you know, she'll say to me as much as I might say to her, wait a minute, you know, we are entering that world of vertigo. <laughs> Do we want to go there right now? Uh, and more often than not, we choose not to. Um, yeah. The the antithesis of all of this, as you write about, is really what, what we kind of always want to think about, which is that, well, there's a rational solution to this. We can have an argument, and I'll present my facts, and you present your facts, and we'll just have a rational discussion. That just doesn't work. <laughs> no, it's shocking. I mean, in an emotionally charged, you look at what people fight about in these emotionally charged conflicts. Sometimes they're over extremely meaningful things, sacred land. Yeah, uh, who's going to get the children, you know, on the weekdays, the weekend. That's, you know, that's some seriously meaningful stuff. On the other hand, uh, there's a Boston-based, uh, Boston-originated um, you know, comedian, Dane Cook, uh, who talks, I think it's about what he calls the nothing fight. He says he loves to go into supermarkets and listen to couples talk and argue because, you know, they fight over the stupidest things, but they get so into it. This is the reality in the way of an emotionally charged conflict. We, there are all of these forces, emotional forces, that tend to push us deeper and deeper into conflict. At, at, the, at the end of the day, the conflict, yes, it is about substance, you know, a piece of land or what cereal we should get. And yet at the end of the day, it's, it's really about the relationship. How close are we? Do I feel respected in this relationship? Do I feel I have the ability to be who I want to be in this relationship, or do I feel like you are just utterly controlling me? The other thing that that ha- seems to happen in those situations is that the, as you say, the nothing fight, and, and we see this even in in much larger contexts and much larger frameworks, whether it's between couples or between nations. That the presenting issue, what the argument is about, what the fight is about, even what the military battle is about, may have historical antecedents and be about things that that people have been sort of not dealing with for a long time. And, And that nothing moment becomes the catalyst for all that hostility to be let loose. Absolutely. Yeah, so they're they're. There often is an experience of what a colleague calls a time collapse. So the past shifts into the present and feels like it happened two minutes ago. So the fact that you kicked me off my land 50 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, it feels like it happened yesterday. The fact that, you know, and then on, on the more trivial side, uh, the fact that you left the toilet seat up, you know, five years ago on a Tuesday, boy, I hate you for that and I will hate you for that today. <laughs> you know? uh, no, in the um, in the book, I write about an example based upon a, a true story. A former professor of mine, eccentric English professor, gets into a fight with his wife in the mall. She absolutely wants this $500 bed spread. He thinks this is the stupidest financial decision they could ever make. They start having this big argument, and they get into what I call vertigo, that emotionally consuming tornado. He says, all of a sudden, then, 
just for a moment. My eyes avert those of my wife. And he said, I saw there was a circle of onlookers watching us fight. I had not seen it. <laughs> then he says, I looked down at my watch. 20 minutes had passed. I thought it was five. So when we get into a conflict situation, there is this warping of consciousness. Our sense of time and space start to shift. The past becomes the present. The feared future feels inevitable. You know, oh, that, that, you know, that, that, that other group, they're absolutely going to crush us forever. We can never trust them. Welcome to Vertigo. To what extent, and I know you, you write about this in, in Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, and you've written about it in other things, the sense of, of the power roles in a relationship, whether, again, whether it's between nations or whether it's between couples, the sense of power relationship and what role does it play in these conflicts and, and untangling from these conflicts? Yeah, power is a big deal. I mean, some, how do you negotiate with your boss? How do you negotiate with, you know, with a country that has many more resources than you do? I think people often uh, misunderstand power, though. The way I see power, it is the ability to influence somebody else. And if it's the ability to influence, this means you have a lot more power than you typically think. Uh, you know, I have to, if I can build a good relationship with the other side, that's power. Even if they have more money than I do, I now have the ability to influence them. If I can build, you know, in a workplace setting, if I feel like there's some discrimination going on, I might feel powerless. And so I think, oh, wait a minute, you know, there's 50 of us of this gender or of this ethnic background. I should organize our group into a small coalition. Now let's try and talk with, you know, the senior management. That's power. Uh, you have power in creating a clear walkaway alternative to your negotiation. If you're dealing with someone who doesn't want to listen to you, who, who you know, appears erratic and irrational, one thing you can do is, well, is there any other way I can get my interest in that without this person? You know, I want to buy a car. I mean, probably a bad example here. Or, uh, but, but I want to buy a car. I love this car at this car lot, but boy, that dealer's a jerk. Let me see about some of the other car lots. Let me get a good deal there. Now I'm more powerful, even with the jerk at the car lot I like. Talk a little bit about this notion that you hear sometimes, and it's, I, I forget who originally put forth these ideas, that sometimes when you have a conflict that, is, that it seems non-negotiable and intractable, that sometimes, yeah. sometimes the solution to a difficult problem is to create a larger problem. And, and, and that sometimes is an easier thing to solve. Talk a little bit about that, Dan. Yeah, I, I hate to, have, you know, to start a bigger, to start a war to, uh, to save a crisis. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure I'd agree with that advice necessarily. I think it's, it's true. It, it, it can work. At the same time, I think that once we get enmeshed in a, in a, in a, in a conflict that, that implicates our identity, it's, it's very hard to shift out of it. You know, it's, it's very hard to shift out of that identity. I'm thinking, for example, of the, the story I opened my book with, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. um, where I, I put people into, it's just a little experiment I've created, putting people into small groups, small, and they create their own little tribes in those small groups, creating an identity for their tribe. An alien comes and says, I'm gonna destroy the world unless you can choose one of these tribes that everybody can join. What ends up happening, whether with world leaders, Harvard students or others, people tend to destroy the world 
rather than succumbing to some other tribe's identity. In other words, in the course of 50 minutes, people become so identified with the tribal identity that again, they'd rather destroy the world than sacrifice that identity. And that really goes to the heart of understanding the whole framework of, of what we've been talking about and, and the issues that, that you face or that anybody faces in the context of trying to, as you say, the negotiating the non-negotiable, is that, that from an evolutionary perspective, from a human perspective, we are so tribal and that we identify with groups and, I, and, and our identity is so tied up in things. It, it's the overlay that makes all of this so much more difficult. Yeah. I mean, we look at the political system right now, or we look at families in crisis, people just polarize. They just go on one side of the, you know, I'm one tribe, you're another tribe, and you are absolutely different. I will close my ears to your tribe. I'm going to defend mine to no end. Now, what are we doing there? You're right, from an evolutionary perspective. All I'm trying to do is to protect my family, my tribe, my political tribe, my family tribe. And yet at the same time, we're creating this deep divisiveness, this polarization that only does bad, you know, for the family health or for the health of a country. So, so I think and there's a desperate need right now for ideas like those that our research has uncovered, how we move beyond tribalism toward a communal mindset. We are all a part of this United States of America. We're all part of our family. How are we going to deal with these differences together? Dr. Daniel Shapiro, his newest book is Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. Dan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it's an honor to talk with you. Thank you.